You're listening to The Authenticity Show, where you get to eavesdrop on great conversations about health, creativity, and the quest for excellence. Your hosts are Carlos Casanos and Satch Purcell. Our guest today is Sean Carson. Sean Carson is a certified hypnotist and NLP trainer, and along with Jess Marion and John Overdurf, is the author of Deep Trance Identification, Unconscious Modeling and Mastery for Hypnosis Practitioners, Coaches, and Everyday People. He's originally from England, but now he lives in New York, which he refers to as the greatest city on the face of the earth. And this turned out to be a very interesting conversation. So let's check it out. Here we are. Here we are. All right. Here we are. We got Sean Carson. This is so cool. Hi, everyone. Sean Carson, I met you a couple of HypnoThoughts ago. Yeah, correct. The last time I went to HypnoThoughts, I actually saw you present, which I hadn't done before. Oh, nice. What did you say? Um, I saw you You were presenting about um, rhizomes. And it must rhizomes. be John Overdurf in a nutshell or something like that. It was. It yeah, was John Overdurf in a nutshell. And what I was impressed by was how freaking theatrical you were during the whole thing. I had no idea that you had all this theatrical bone in your body that you were... You know, they call it the eagle. So you do have long arms, right? Yeah, and your arms are massive. You've got like a good wingspan there. Yeah, it's like this entertainment thing that uh, Bandler talks about. Is Uh is, If people are not entertained, they're not going to take the information away, so... You were talking about rhizomes, and so I don't know what you're talking about. I'm just thinking of a side-growing root. Yes, so so a rhizome. Mm-hmm. I mean, the best example is bamboo. Yes, right. So you see, so if you if you go into, I'm not sure if you've ever been into like a bamboo forest, but you mm-hmm. walk in there and there's all these plants, right? You see yeah. all the bamboo shoots, and you think that's the plant, but actually the plant is on the ground, and all those are just shoots off one basically giant. Uh, interconnected plants. Right, so, right, okay. Uh, the metaphor is, I mean, it's more than a metaphor, um, but the metaphor is that when you're dealing with your client, say, if you're in the coaching context, everything your client has ever done, thought, experienced, read, seen on movies is all interconnected in their experience, mm. and yet they're bringing you one little shoot Right, and they're saying this shoot is my problem. Perfect. I right? see. That's that's a great. If, if that's great. Get, if you get locked into that sort of way of thinking, uh, it's not good for the client, right? Because mm. everything else is feeding into that that shoot. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can kind of enter into the rhizome at any point, and it's not like a it's not like a tree where there's the tree, and then the tree spreads out into the roots. You can go anywhere in, and ultimately everything is joined up. So that's that's kind of the the concept of the rhizome. Oh, that's great! I love that. It's 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 unifying. It's unifying. I mean, we have this Western mindset of trees. Right? Everything we do, we 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 think of as trees, mm-hmm. family trees, and knowledge trees, and evolutionary mm-hmm. trees, and everything like starts in one point and then starts mm-hmm. to branch. Right? Organizational right. trees. Uh, life trees or pathway through, through life. It's all this like mm-hmm. linear branching type of, of organization, but that's not really how life is. Life is much mm. more complicated. 
Yeah, a rhizome or a mycelium under the ground. All that's beautiful. I love that. I love that. Yeah. So, so that again is a, it's not a John Overdurth, but he uses that widely. Uh, I think it was originally uh, used by Young. But but yeah, it's a much richer metaphor than the tree metaphor. Mm. Yeah, I get it. That's great. Or in any sort of organizational um, Mm. sense, in terms of relationships or organizations or companies, countries or culture. Well, you know, um, uh, I'm I'm a clinician. I practice Chinese medicine, Mm -hmm. and uh, I'm already seeing how that same concept applies to medicine. Somebody has a symptom. That's one shoot coming up. They have another symptom coming up. It's like, well, no, no. These are all yeah in the same system. Yeah. yeah, and this is really, I mean, the 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 um, Chinese go crazy at the Western thought of medicine that like, okay, you're treating the symptom, right? Mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. the patient has this one thing, and that's what you're that's what you're banging at with your with your medicines and everything mm-hmm. versus what's the health of the person overall. Yeah, so, yeah exactly. It, it's yeah. very much an Eastern way of thinking versus a Western way of thinking. Hmm, thank you. Plus, it, 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 it aligns with all the other things that we learn about um, person's conscious awareness being only a small portion of yeah. what's going on overall. And then, you know, that most of the stuff that's happening is the result of unconscious processing. For sure. Yeah. So, I mean, if we coach, we, we're looking for the synesthesia, right? So we're looking in the, in the Overdurfian map is we're looking for that point in time where your client loses control. Where, where they're telling their story and then suddenly ah, they drop into their problem state. Yeah. Right? It's like, what the fuck is that? Right. I mean, yeah. what did they just do? Why did they, why did they think about their boss and go into a negative state? Yeah. Right? Is that, is that about their boss? Like the Western mindset would be, well, that's about their boss, but is it really about their boss? Is it about other things in their life? Is it about right. their past, mm-hmm. their history, all these things um, weave in and it gives you so many more uh, points of leverage in terms of how you can change your clients. It's not like, okay, I have to bang this, bang this one thing, and oh my God, it isn't working. Uh, <laughs> you can go and do a re-imprinting, or you can go into the future. You can uh, work on the emotional state, work on the values, work on their map of the world. Uh, there's so many ways of going into the rhizome to, to change it. And the other side of that is that you don't know um, we, we say you never know how far a change may go. So a person is not a predictable thing, right? But if they say, uh, okay, I, I'm a smoker and I want to quit, right? And you help them to quit. You have no idea how that's going to spread through their, through their life, um, through their family, through the people they know. Their spouse is a smoker. It, it, it just it ripples out in this karmic um, um, sense of, of consequence and consequence and consequence, and you just don't know what those are going to be. So you make this change, and then you kind of watch and see see where the ripples spread. Mm. That's kind of um, reminiscent of Grinder's cat metaphor. You know, the, yeah. the ball versus the cat metaphor. Um, so, so Satch um, John Grinder uh, is one of the co-founders of um, NLP, and he used an, a metaphor that you know when you when you kick a uh, a soccer ball. Um, you could theoretically, you know, take a look at all the angles involved and how much pressure and speed and things like that were involved. And you could you could predict with a fair bit of accuracy where that ball is going to go. But if you replace the ball, just one factor, a major factor, right, 
with a cat. You have no freaking clue where it's going to go. I mean, <laughs> you want to kick a cat, of course. But, yeah. but I mean, if you think about it, they might move before you kick. They might move after you kick. They might do different things. They might bite your leg. You know, there's all mm-hmm. sorts of possibilities that could happen with a cat. Right, right. They're not very bouncy either. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's a living system. It's the idea of like living systems versus sort of like these artificial fixed ideas that we have about a problem when in fact yeah. the problem is is interwoven in the way they think and different ways that they may be reacting and of course yeah you know, considering the solution and all the ways the solution can be a part of this uh the system you know that it's all connected in there yeah yeah no that's 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 a good analogy um it, it it's it's kind of like if you're kicking the ball it's like you are the system and the ball's just a ball but when you're yeah. a cat, it's one system kicking another system, and it's, it's so complicated. You know, um, this the, both of these analogies, the uh, the rhizome and you know, and 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 this this ball concept um, uh, reminds me of a discussion that you and I have had a lot, which is um, holism versus reductionism. Yeah, you know that idea that that um, well, and like in 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 science or in in Western medicine, as we we understand a problem by reductionism. We break it down, we reduce it into its component pieces. And if we understand those pieces, then we can make predictions about how the whole functions. Uh, whereas holism is that idea that um, all the parts adding up together is quite often rather different from the individual parts, right? Mm-hmm. And um, both are important, but it's too easy to forget the holism part and focus only on the reductionism part. True. You know. Yeah, yeah, so really, I mean, our, um, um, our, our map in the HNLP uh, world is, is this idea of induction followed by deduction followed by induction. Mm-hmm. So at some point, you need to bring the change work back to uh, a, a specific time, a specific place, a specific feeling and behavior. Um, but you don't know if you change that where it's going to go to. So then you're back into the induction. And then mm-hmm. at some point, you need to bring it back to the deductive place mm-hmm. so to give an example of the way we coach we we spend most of our time coaching the body versus the mind in terms of the hnlp map mm-hmm. um so you've got a client and and the client comes in and they say i've got this problem right and they'll say it happens all the time so it's this big thing and so the first thing that we do in terms of hnlp is we want to go very deductive to bring it down to a, a piece a specific mm-hmm. piece, as specific as possible. Tell me about the last time and place. And they say, okay, it was Thursday of last week and it was three o'clock in the afternoon. I was in the office and blah, blah, blah. And that's when it took place. Okay. Mm-hmm. And they tell you and you listen to the story until you see them lose control, right? Until you see the rhizome do something which is like, well, that doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. Mm. Right, it's like okay, I'm giving a presentation in front of this group of people in the office, and uh, and it's like, okay, well, why is like why is this group of people making you feel that way? There's something in the rhizome, there's some linkage in the rhizome which is making them do that, right? And then we just say, well, okay, that's how you've been. How do you want to be different? And they go, well, I want to be confident. Okay, and when you're feeling confident now, mm. right, mm. see the faces of the audience, and they go. Oh, fantastic. All is different. All is changed. I am completely transformed Mm. or not. Right. And it's that or not where then you're back into the rhizome and you're just listening. Okay. What's going on now? Mm. Right. Well, yeah, I feel better, but, uh, but, um, 
uh, you know, I don't believe I can change. Or um, I was six years old and I was at show and tell and something went wrong. Or whatever it is, mm. they they shoot through, th- through their rhizome and they find something else which is energetically feeding into that in a negative way. And mm. so we just, we follow them through the rhizome, right? Until That's we've dealt with enough of it that Thursday at three o'clock, mm-hmm. right, of last week, they feel good about it. Mm-hmm. And then we say, now tell me about another time and place, mm-hmm. right? So, so, so we're coming down to the specific, then we're opening up to the general, and then as mm-hmm. soon as we've got to a place that looks good, we're bringing it back down to a specific and then out again. So it's always yeah. in, out, in, out. That's deduct- perfect. Yeah. Deduct- That's perfect. Yeah. If all you do is the general, if all you do is the big picture, they, they may f- feel fantastic in your office, but then not be able to take that change back into their real world when they're in a, a context. Yeah. Great yeah. Time. Yeah. No, I get it. That's wonderful. It's, it's like you're going, you're going yin and then yang and then yin yeah, exactly. and then yang to create balance all the way through. That's beautiful. Yeah. That's so cool. And, and for those who, who, who will only have the benefit of, of listening to the audio, um, you know, Sean has made, you know, a, a variety of gestures as he was describing this and, and some of them were really, you know, sort of <laughs> exactly that one too. And, uh, you know, big, broad sweeping gestures and smaller gestures. And, and when he was responding to it, he was using, you know, his own hands. Um, mm-hmm. so I'm, I want to talk to you a little bit about that because you, you, in the very first part of the description, you talk about coaching the body. And I really, really appreciate that a lot. It's been something that's been a huge focus of mine. Could you, um, maybe talk a little bit about what that is, what, you know, how that's approached, why it's important, etc. So if you think about it in, in terms of the body is in physical space, right? So my body is in a physical space and there are basically two parts of that space. There's the space inside my body, which is typically feelings. And then there's this space around me, um, which my unconscious mind is going to map my rhizome onto. And so, so your client will literally say, um, oh, I've got this problem, right? And I wish I was different, right? So they're actually mapping things onto the physical space around them. It's sort of like clean language type of um, right. uh, a mindset. So we're always watching our client. Where are they gesturing? Where are they looking when they talk about their problem, when they talk about their resources, and then how can we start to uh, change that physical mapping, um, either by doing the sort of the classical NLP map across type of techniques, or just gesturing, right? So when we do the uh, basic first step of the coaching pattern, right, and they've told us, okay, it was Thursday, it's three o'clock in the afternoon, I was in the office, I was speaking to, to this group of people, and ooh, I felt awful, right? We're saying that's how you've been, right? So I'm taking that experience and I'm moving it into their past on their timeline with my hand. I'm physically grabbing it, moving it into their past Mm -hmm. and opening up this new picture in their future, right? So typically my left hand, so it's on their right hand side, spreading the palm out to give them a screen on which they can create their future. When they've said, I want to feel confident, so they're seeing the picture. You say, take your hand and you physically push it into their body. Like, and what's it like when you're feeling confident now? Right. And so there's this spatial thing, and then inside, obviously, uh, they'll say, "Oh, um, 
you know, I'm in front of this group of people and I feel nervous, right? So it's like, okay, where do you feel that in your body, right? Not in your head, right? And, and for a lot of people, they never thought about that. They'll go, huh? You mean in my body? Where do I feel that? And you go, yeah, yeah that's, that's where your feelings are, right? Yeah. Again, it's this Western idea that, you, that your feelings are something inside your head versus inside your body. Mm-hmm. So, so it's this inside the body, outside the body. Um, the unconscious mind is using this physical space to map both emotional states and also this conceptual f- framework. And once you once you know that, it's a powerful way of making change. That makes really good sense. And and for a non NLPer, um, a lot of people when they're talking, you'll see them starting to borrow each other's gestures um, just because. That's what we do as human beings. It seems like, you know, we, we want to be understood. We want to understand. And so to facilitate communication, we do a lot of our communication at an unconscious level. We start to do the things that other people do. We, not, we don't just modulate our pitch the same way. We actually start to move our heads the same way and kind of borrow each other's gestures. And, and it has, um, or at least it, it seems to have more layers of meaning when we do it that way. And, and so... If you don't think you're doing this, um, you might not be, but look around. Uh, you, you might also be doing it because there are people that walk around and they look like suspended heads, and that's, but they are right. all and, not and very emotional. Really, yeah, and so it's really about um, um, being able to consciously tap into that. It, it's like there's um, two people who are living inside you. Mm. Right? Your conscious mind and your unconscious mind, and they have different um, cable feeds. Right, so the conscious mind has got this um, cable feed from like 1962, uh, black and white TV, one channel with lousy sound, right? And the unconscious mind has this like complete uh, 2000 channel cable with all the sports shows and the this and the that with 3D Dolby sound. And if you're not able to tap into that unconscious um cable consciously then you're living your life in this black and white really really totally boring um world but but as soon as you can actually consciously begin to pay attention to what your client is doing physically in terms of their body their gestures their facial expressions their tonality uh it it just makes the whole world um infinitely more interesting let's say yeah that's true and yeah to give like the real reason i got into this is um uh, I kind of retired uh, back in uh, 2005 or six or something, six, and um, I did an NLP course and like my first my first experience, and I was dealing with this guy like he, uh, as my client in a practice, and his um, his presenting issue was he he was having a problem with his girlfriend, right? They weren't getting along, you know, blah 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 blah. And um, he says, he looks up to his left and he says, I can't get her to see things my way. <laughs> so, so in terms of NLP, he, he's going into a visual memory. Right. I just can't get her to see things my way. And I said, well, what would you have to do for things to be different? And he looks down to his right, and that's like a kinesthetic in terms of NLP, down to his right, he said, I guess I would have to feel what she's feeling, right? And he had no idea what he just said. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, my God, he showed me both in terms of 
his gestures, in terms of where his eyes went, and in terms of his choice of words, what his problem is and what the solution is. Right? He's visual. She's kinesthetic. Right? It's like, okay, we're, we're kind of done now. We know what the problem is. We know what the solution is. All we have to do is to get there. Mm-hmm. So for me, at that point in time, it was like I was previously checked into this 1962 one-channel black-and-white TV um, with bad sound, and then suddenly the world sort of went three-dimensional. And I went, oh, my God. Right? There's right. all this information which I had been blissfully not aware of for the first um, 40-something years of my life. Mm. So useful. Yeah. So yeah, useful. It's, it's so, it's such a great, it, this is such a great feel. So Sean, um, you know, maybe it's an illusion, but I'm detecting an accent in your voice. Are you Texan? Yeah. Are you from Texas? Yeah, <laughs> no, the Bronx. No, I'm British. I was born in uh, in Blackburn, in the northwest. Blackburn. So I've got a, a British. I've got a very soft northern accent. It's like uh, my family say, uh, "Oh, I'll take a look in the cookbook." That's how. That's <laughs> okay. Like all the all, all the vowels are lengthened. Right. Uh, I don't do that because I was middle class and then I lived in the South. And so mm. I, I don't have that, but I have a, yeah, a Northern accent. So a lot of Americans think it's Australian or South African <laughs> or something because I'm not like, mm. I don't speak like the queen. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Right. Not speaking <laughs> RP. <laughs> it's kind of, it's a mid Atlantic now, to be honest. When did you uh, come over to the States for, for like permanent living? Uh, 94. Five, I think, 1995, 1996, to want to move into something new, but I also have to be kicked from behind. I, I know that about myself. Mm. Um, I don't change jobs unless I, I've got something good to move into and mm. I don't like my old job. Got it. So originally we came over in 1993 for one year. And the reason we came over is because we love to travel, mm-hmm. travel, seeing new countries, new cultures, new people. And I, Fucking hated my boss back in London. He was such <laughs> a jackass. Yeah, he was a boss home. This was back in the 90s. <laughs> and the culture in London is that people would go out at lunchtime and they would get wasted. They would get completely wasted. And then they would come back into the office in the afternoon to do some more work. Right? Mm. So That's one way I'm, to handle it. I'm, yeah. I'm walking around... <laughs> dealing with these people who are drunk off their asses in the afternoon and they're telling oh, me gosh. what I should be doing. I'm wow. just like, just go home and sleep it off. Like, don't be a jackass. Yeah. Um, wow. Oh, man. I, uh, that, that could be very interesting. You know what your problem is, Sean? You know? <laughs> they, would, they would do that. Tell, tell me, what's my problem? They, they would call their clients up as well. This was in business in uh, a consulting organization. They would call their clients up. 
And I'm like, hey, it's, uh, it's Mike. The guy's name was Mike. Hey, it's Mike. Yeah, I've called you up because we want to talk about this. And it's like, the guy can hear you drunk. I mean, yeah. He, he might be drunk as well. I don't know. But yeah, uh, it was just like, <laughs> it was unbearable. It was completely unbearable. So I had that push and the pull to travel. We came over uh, for one year. Mm-hmm. Right and 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 the company, the sister company in the U.S. asked me to stay. Oh, please stay because we really like you. Because the Americans think the Brits are really really smart. Right, it's the accent. It's like, yeah, it's so intelligent. I know, absolutely true. It, it gives you an immediate advantage here. Yeah, immediate yeah. advantage. It does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. British yeah. privilege, right? And that's great uh, that you capitalize on that with the intelligent hypnotist. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, we do. Um, I'm not uh, like I. I have nothing against people who use scripts. I would say, I, I was talking about this with uh, Scott Sandland, and we agreed 65, 70% of people, you can drop them into trance, use a script, tell them to change, and they'll change. Mm-hmm. Right? But you have the 30% or the third of people or whatever it is who don't. Right? And, and, and the scriptologists go, I don't know what went wrong. I put them into trance, I read a script, and they didn't change. Right, so I it, I will do deep trance, and we'll tell people to change, and we use um, the blackjack rule. You know, tell them twenty-one times to change, and they'll change. So we do that because um, I want my clients to change. Uh, but if that was it, why would I be in this business? Right, it would be so boring if yes, all, all you do is read scripts. Right, it's it's like you could just hit the play button, right, and step out of the room. People do. I mean, there's a lot of people who do the multiple clients at the same time with the headphones. They put them in the chair, and they they press play on the recorder. Ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's okay as a business, but um, I it's this business is not a good business for making a lot of money in in general (laughs) terms, right? Because there's no leverage for most of us. Mm -hmm. Um, We sell our time. Mm-hmm. So if all I want to do is to make money, I can make a lot more doing something else. That's true. Right? Mm-hmm. I do this because for myself, I am a, uh, a selfish bastard and I want to personally grow. And what important way of doing that is, is to be able to look at a person who's not me and do this examination, right? Mm-hmm. What are they doing? Because I know I'm probably doing the same things in some other aspects of my life. Mm, wow. So it's all about self-growth, personal growth. Yeah, when, nice. when you're working with people, um, what you were talking about, the rhizome thing, it reminded me of uh, a description that um, James Sokolos was giving about Sherlocking. You know, he was giving a course in, in um, improvisation and NLP and understanding, you know, underlying structures that and, and principles that make the, you know, all the moving parts of various processes and, and talking about Sherlocking, you know, like asking yeah. the right kinds of questions and, and, and finding out what does sprout out in a way, what shows yeah. itself and then investigating, you know, what are those things connected to? Yeah. So, you know, that, that's the fun part in a way, if you're, if that's you're so really fun. curious about, about personal growth and if you're curious yeah. about the stuff of NLP and hypnosis and psychology and, and all that, it's, it's what makes it fun for us. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's great fun. And then the other part that's a lot of fun is um, I do a lot of longer-term co- coaching. I have a lot of clients who come back on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Um, 
generally, this is brief change work, right? So if someone comes and they go, oh, I've, I've got this issue and I've had this issue for my entire life. I've been in therapy for 10 years. How long do you think the change will take? And I'll go, well, based upon what you told me the problem is, probably two sessions, three sessions. And they go, that's impossible because I've been in therapy for 10 years. And you go, yeah, but your therapist is invested in keeping you safe. Mm-hmm. But there are some people who want to work on many aspects of their life and therefore they come back. And those are the clients where you really build a, um, a, a relationship. You really care about them and you see them doing things which um, they couldn't do before. And you just go, oh, this is just fantastic. I, I, I've got a client and her life is ruled by fear. And I say she's a... a, a a Sith Lord, right? Because she's got this. And she has this um, resource state about being in water, right? Di- diving and, sw- and swimming, but she's too scared of doing it, right? She can't actually go and do a scuba class because she's too scared of it. So we get to the end of a session and she says, um, oh, on the way over, I saw this this shop, this scuba shop, and they have like a course, like a uh, I forget the name of the of the scuba courses, but the scuba course. Um, Patty. So Patty. Like, uh, yeah, that would be really good, but but I can't afford it, right? So I go, okay, well, don't pay me f- f- for the session, but take the money you would have paid me and and put it down as a deposit on the course, right? So now she's in a double bind. Right? <laughs> right? So it's like, I'm paying for this course now. And she's like, okay, I'll do it. Right? So now she's flying off. She had a fear of flying, but now she flies <laughs> off and she goes scuba diving. And it's that sort of thing where you go like, oh my God, this person has really transformed their life, uh, has moved out of the darkness of the Sith into the Jedi. Um, mm. And it's just incredible to see in it. Uh, just fantastic to be a part of that sort of growth for somebody's life. I love the Star Wars reference. That's great. Yeah, yeah. We use the Sith yeah. and the Jedi quite a lot because it's it's very true. Right? It's our generation too. Yeah. 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 yeah I mean, I did use that um, back in Vegas. I guess it was. I guess it was last year, uh, and um, a student in the class was was from China, and he was very uh, studious. Chinese, I, I use the Sith and the um, and, and the Jedi, and he raises his hand and he goes, uh, "Excuse me, sir, what is Star Wars?" <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So how is it that you went from moving over here to this, you know, sister company or, or, or whatever, and then you got into uh, NLP and hypnosis, things like that? Because you so know, it's, you- a, it's it's a long a long story. Um, I I think I'm a little bit on the spectrum, like into like I don't really or before I got involved in this, I didn't get people at all. I'm just like, why is mm. this person doing this? Yeah, mm. I was very much this like head up kind of thing. Yeah. So, um, it, it caused me a lot of issues in terms of my career because people get 
the, the promotions and pay rises, not by being good at their job, but by how they interact with their colleagues and, that, and their bosses. Yeah. Emotional the intelligence, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which I didn't have. Like, mm-hmm. like, I'm very smart, but my EQ was like this big. <laughs> uh, not that I was nasty. I mean, I was very nice, no. but I didn't, I didn't have the rapport skills. I, all that yeah. stuff. Um, so um, I, I got a corporate coach who, who was very nice, and, and she said, read this book. I think it's called Influencing with Integrity, Jeannie Laborde. Mm-hmm. And it's a very old uh, business book based on NLP. Mm-hmm. I read this book and I'm like, oh, wow. It's like, this is not something which is unconscious. This is something which you can actually consciously tap into. So I read a lot of stuff around the NLP. I was very interested, uh, but it was only after I re- retired um, that um, I said, okay, I'll take an NLP course. Right? And then I just got hooked really with that um, uh, guy I was working with who was doing the uh, girlfriend stuff. Oh, yeah, with all the looking and gesturing. Yeah, I mean, that was like, I'm just like, oh, my God, I see it. Like, finally, the, for the first time in my life, I'm, I was 40, 43 years old or something, and I actually understood how someone was working. I was just like, wow, that's incredible. Wow. So that was a, I, a big convincer for you. And, and, and had you started with, with, uh, with John Overdurf or somewhere else? No, that was with, um, there's a center, training center in, in New York that is really traditional nlp so it's kind of like 1980s type <laughs> stuff like like um okay what are the six steps i mean they would literally because i was a teaching assistant uh, yeah in later courses and the the uh the people who own the center had been in the business for like 30 40 years or whatever would get their manuals out and say okay i just need to remind myself of the six steps of the six step pre-frame <laughs> okay like, does it matter right <laughs> like, Right, so they didn't understand the moving parts at all. They didn't know. It, it, it was just process for them. Got um, it. So, I mean, I got like a good basis in terms of NLP, but but I'm like, these are not the guys, right? So then yeah. I trained with Melissa Tears mm-hmm. uh, for like a number of a number of years, and we co-wrote a book, and uh, and then I wanted to do my trainer's training, and I said, well, there's this guy is doing the course, and this, and she goes, you have to train with John Overdurf. You have to train with John Overdurf. Is that is is that obvious enough, John? Is that an obvious enough? Because <laughs> um, John is, in my mind, John is like the best coach in the world. I mean, maybe like a Tony Robbins or something, uh, but John's classes are like 10 people. Um, right. And he's incredibly skilled and he knows his stuff incredibly. So well, his student might- base includes like um, me and Jess and Sarah and Melissa Tears, Igor. Uh, Steve Rome, like all these big names in the field, go and and study with John because John is just really really good. So that's really John is the is the one who gave me the structure or some of the structure. That's really cool. Yeah, I mean, um, just having not trained with John, but just having seen videos of him and, and whatnot, and spoken to people like you uh, and Jess and others uh, who have. Um, much more interest in, from my end at least, in studying with someone like John than, say, Tony Robbins, who you mentioned. I mean, first yeah, of all, I mean, Tony, I think he's really, really good, but you're in a stadium with 30,000 people. So it's like, yeah, that there's that. And, and, and it's Tony Robbins. He's got his own thing going, but he's not as trained in NLP as John is. No, I mean, John is. John he is, did his practitioner training many, many years ago, but he didn't go any further with it. 
No, John is the is a creative genius in the field. John's work is, as far as I know, is the most complex coaching uh, system or modality I've seen. Right? He's got attention shifting coaching where you have to like you know, spin the client's words and go inductive and deductive and blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, and he says, Sean, don't make it overly complex. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think John sorts by like, if he invented it, it's simple, but if someone else did, it's complicated. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's funny. So, no, but John, but John, also John can't explain exactly what he's doing. He, he can say, I'm doing this, but if you say, why are you doing that now? You'll sort of go like, I don't know, it just felt like the right thing. So he's very intuitive in the way he works. Yeah. Well, like most genius. Yeah. yeah. It's, un it's unconscious and it requires a... Well, yeah, I mean, model, I mean, right? yeah, I mean, so there's an artist. Like, if you look at an artist, uh, um, like a Picasso, right, and you look at the progression of their work, at the end of the day, it's like really, it's like, how, why, what is he doing? Like, what the fuck is that? But if you look at his earlier work, he's trained himself, right? So you can see the progression from the specific to the abstract. Mm -hmm. right? So again, a good artist will typically start off with very precise brush strokes and then over time will become more inductive in terms of that approach. Mm. Super cool. Yeah, I mean, if somebody, if someone was an artist and all their work is like splattered paint, you've got to think like, <laughs> if, like, is this really an artist or is this ch like a chimpanzee in the zoo? Right. I, I, I don't know. So yeah. I like to see an artist and say, okay, they can paint, right? They have the technical skills and they've, they've opened up into this world that, that they see. You're speaking to my heart right now because, um, well, I've I've talked about you know Jackson Pollock. You know, you know he, uh, you know he knew how to really draw the human form in detail. Same same with uh, Picasso. Um, but you yeah. know, I went to the Van Gogh Museum uh, when I was in in Amsterdam, and I felt like ashamed that I didn't really like Picasso, uh, didn't really like uh, his work very much, um, and people were like furrowing their eyebrows like you don't like van gogh and i said well i just doesn't really speak to me and i was thinking about why it was and it was just i think it was just that i never really it didn't complete the picture for me because i never saw an example of um where he came from and where he got to i just saw where he got to so yeah. i didn't see any kind of like well, like I think, I think advanced drawing skills or illustration skills. I, didn't yeah, I, mean, I think the interesting thing is that if you look at his early work, it's like a potato. Right. right. It doesn't even look like a potato. It looks like a brown blob. Right. And suddenly, it, it, it's not that there's a, a progression. It's not like, okay, paints a brown blob and then he paints a, a red potato and then it's an orange potato. I mean, it's like all his work is horrible and then suddenly, bang, right? There's this, like somebody turned the light on and he said, yeah. Oh, there's color in the world. Oh my God. Right. right. Let me use that. So that's a very interesting case because he obviously had some uh, mental switch that, that turned in his brain, I guess, due to his, uh, uh, his mental condition, um, where, where he went from like painting a potato to like this incredible, mm. open, colorful um, 
field. So that, so I think he's very interesting in that sense. And I think he is the exception to a lot of those rules. Maybe he uh, discovered psilocybin mushrooms or something. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I think that's, I think there's a very good chance that, uh, yeah, he he took some kind of. Yeah. uh, Mm. Well, you know, since we're talking about Van Gogh, um, I went to the, um, uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, you know, years ago, this was in the, uh, this is probably like 1992, maybe 93, sometime around there. And when I was there, um, they had um, a Starry Night on display there. Yeah. I guess they, you know, they had it there for a little while. And I was with some other guys that knew a lot about art. And at the time, I really didn't know any. I never took like a fine arts <laughs> class or anything like that. And uh, and I was looking at Starry Night and my friends, my friend next to me was going, man, I, I can't believe I'm staring at this painting. And he was really blown away. And I was just kind of like, all right, whatever, you know. And then, and then years later... Um, I found myself in a fine arts class and we've talked a lot about Van Gogh and I developed such a deep appreciation for what he was really doing that I looked back and I thought, I can't believe I looked at that painting and I blew it off. Cause like <laughs> now I look at it, I'm like, Oh my God. Cause I see what he was trying to yeah. do, you know? Yeah. And it's just funny how, how well, just, well, this is a rise. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. There you go. Yeah, exactly. And, and uh, now I look at Starry Night and I see what he was trying to show. And it's like, that blows my mind. But it was just, it's just having the perspective. It's knowing the process. It matters. They believe he had schizoaffective disorder, which is a ah. combination of, of bipolar with some schizophrenic tendencies, which is why he would uh, be depressed and paint these real dull colors and not much life. And then he'd go on a rampage and he'd do like, he would just paint for three straight days and do these amazing colorful paintings. Cause it was, it was bipolar. He was, he was depressed and then manic and then depressed and then manic, you know? And um, so, yeah, so that kind of does explain some of the, the context of why his paintings were so drastically different at times. Thank yeah, you. And it's really, it's, it's like his story is really part of the art. I mean, the fact that he suffered so much. I mean, if those paintings have been painted by like a, uh, a, a, I don't know, a chirpy little chap from Croydon, they wouldn't <laughs> be as interesting. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah, I can see how this guy is painting this stuff. Yeah. But this guy who sliced off his own ear. I mean, what's what, what's that about? Yeah, right. Doing? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. He was he was uh, in quite a state. And you know, when when he killed himself, he shot himself in the stomach. Which yes. is very interesting. That's like, yeah. why would you do that? Why would he shoot himself in the stomach? It's almost like he was punishing himself, you know. Yeah. And uh, I did yeah. not know that. Yeah, it's yeah, bright my head. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Thanks, Satch. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. You know, so let's all go paint with dull colors now for a while. You know? <laughs> uh, but we'll be back. We'll be back. Yes. <laughs> The other thing I wanted to ask you about is um, deep trance identification. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not just the book, but the concept itself. So, you know, um, you and Jess uh, co-authored this book and, and uh, Good job, yeah. John as well. Um, and before we, John Overdorf. John Overdorf, right? Yeah. And before you had written this, uh, there really wasn't much that you could buy online or anything like that, that, that was about deep trance identification. No. So let's talk first about what it is. So 
deep trans identification is the, is the natural way that we learn as children, right? It's so that we look around us, we look at the people around us, we're in our cots or whatever, we're sitting on the floor, lying on the floor, and, and we see these people are walking around and we go, wow, that looks cool. I wish I could do that, right? And then we learn to walk. Um, and we would come out of the movies and I would come out of the, of the Batman movies and I'd be doing all the Batman moves. Um, so we copy the people around us um, and we do it in such a way that uh, it's not just copying, it's stepping into them. Mm. It's, the, it's, the, it's the concept of mirror neurons. So these are neurons that um, essentially activate when we see somebody doing something and we respect them. Right? Those are the, the basic two things. The, there's got to be a rapport, and then, and then we have to see or hear somebody do something, and then our brain automatically starts to copy them. And we don't have to like physically do it. The brain just does it automatically. So we've all experienced this. If you're, if you're watching a, I don't know, a sports match, like a tennis match, say if you're into tennis, and then like boom, boom, and you, and you see the people like... Shifting from side to side, right? Because they're because they're they're physically into it. Their their mind is copying what is going on. So it's very mm-hmm. natural as a process. Yeah. And um, the the Russians way back when were doing a bunch of research where they basically uh, was in different fields, but the but, but the big one was in music, and they were they took a group of students and they, and they broke them into three groups, the control group where they gave them relaxation exercises. Uh, there was a, a normal group who did nothing. And then there was a group where they did a DTI. So they basically, they got them to, they did a regression back to childhood and they would imagine they were a master of their instrument. So they would pick their favorite uh, violinist or, or whatever their instrument was. And they would become that person in trance as a child. And then they would bring them out and they would get them also to do a physical, you know, air violin or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then they, they tested them before and afterwards, both in terms of artistic interpretation and technical skills um, in, in front of a panel who didn't know which group they were in. And they found large improvement in the group who had done the DTI. Um, so, so the process, I mean, the process obviously in the book is very expansive, mm-hmm. um, but the simplified idea is you pick a model who you would like to be in a specific context. So, so we always do it in context. So if the context is, oh, I want to be a salesman and then I want to use Milton Erickson because he would be a great salesman. Um, and we pick a counterexample because we we want to stay away from becoming too narrow or picking up bad traits. Uh, like Steve Jobs is somebody who a lot of people um, pick for a DTI. And Steve Jobs, obviously, his personal life was a disaster. He was a mess. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wasn't a very nice person for a lot of his life. Um, but then if you, if you pick like um, Wozniak or something, he's a really nice guy, right? So, right? so he's not on the creative side to the extent that Steve Jobs was but he counteracts a lot of the deficiencies which Steve Jobs had. So, so we always pick the model and a, and a counterexample to fill in the gaps, say. Um, and, and then we get them to, to build a sense of rapport with the model. So, that, so, so we basically we put them into trance and, and we get them to imagine they're with Steve Jobs or 
the model. And we, more or less, if you want, we get them to match the breathing of the model. So they're starting to get the mirror neurons in place as they, as they breathe, as they see Steve Jobs in their mind. Um, and then we get them to begin to watch Steve Jobs in the context in which they want Steve Jobs' skills and then to step into that experience. Um, so to become Steve Jobs in the context and then to become their, themselves in the context with Steve Jobs coaching them. So all sorts of different perceptual position um, uh, shifts. We do a lot of dream work in the process. Um, so dream work in the sense of like having people record their dreams and or or using suggestion to create a dream typically if we're doing dream work we'll pick uh, a place right that magical place right and they go to that place in three-dimensional kinesthetic sensory awareness before they go to sleep right and they set and they set the intention to meet their model ah. uh, there was a there's a section in the book on um DTI and method acting, mm. Stanislavski, because mm-hmm. yeah. um, that is DTI, right? I mean, they're stepping yeah. into the character. And um, so I did a lot of dream work, and I would meet Stanislavski, and I was always in this fucking miserable village in Russia, <laughs> built on the side of a mountain, and we were always walking up. <laughs> we're always walking up this bloody steep road like, like, and we'd be walking through and Stanislavski would like point out the blacksmith and this person in the village and that person in the village and explain what that person was doing and how how they were motivated and doing all that stuff but it was always uphill it was it was really annoying it's like why can't we walk downhill <laughs> so it's a it's a it's a great process it's very natural um there's a book on it. There's also a manual which which talks you through the process as a user. Uh, that, that's fun. I think we've got a, um, a video set on on uh, on YouTube as well that goes through the whole process. Super cool. Um, I was impressed with how much uh, there was in it. You know, it wasn't just kind of like a you know casual. Just, just let's just touch on the subject here. Um, you know, you went into it in, in detail yeah. on different ways of understanding, different approaches, different layers of the process. I thought that was super cool. Yeah, so we did a lot of work. I did a lot of work with Jess, uh, Jess with me, with our our clients. Uh, we ran a number of workshops, um, so it was it, it was it was a, a lot of fun. I really like how you described that um, you're you're tapping into that old neural network in childhood where natural learning happens. You know, it just yeah. seems so logical to do that. It seems so natural. I mean, I can remember being a child. Um, stepping into roles like that and and becoming heroes and and it just it's something that I think anybody can identify with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially now because if you want to be James Bond, you just go onto YouTube and there's and there's a million things to watch. So mm-hmm. yeah. uh, there's a lot yeah. more information, a lot more ways of accessing this stuff than there was 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems like you know there's so much detail in the book that if you were a creative person, an intelligent person, you could read the book and you don't have to have any kind of NLP background to do it. You could start doing it, um, just almost reading it at face value, like with the instructions and the manual. And it, it would help if you have background in those things, but it doesn't seem like it's absolutely necessary. So if someone heard this and went, well, I'm really curious about that, you could get the two books and watch the videos on YouTube and you could start on yourself. You could start doing or work with a partner and, and even better. And people do this. I mean, people, 
watch the TV and, 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 and you can see they identify with a, with a particular person or at work or their family or their dog. And we, we actually do. There's a big <laughs> there, there is a big section in the book about DTI with an animal. Of there you go. The, 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 ma- the mailman's here, so this is going to happen <laughs> in a second. Uh, yeah. Is it a female mailman or a male mailman? It is a male mailman with a very long beard. So ah. she probably thinks that it's a man like with a squirrel in his mouth or something, you know. So, okay, it's over. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Deep Trance Identification is the name of the book, just so that people can, can look it up. Um, you won't be disappointed. There's a lot of really great stuff in there. Yeah, it was. It, it's uh, it's a great process, and the trances are just phenomenal. Depending on who you do, I mean, I did the Silver Surfer in a trance. Nice. I was surfing over the surface of the sun in in deep trance, and it's just it's magical. Trance is magical. What are you currently working on um, through either Intelligent Hypnotists or separately that you'd like to share about? So the one that I would like to share about most is um, Vegas. We're doing a pre-conference on Ericksonian hypnotherapy. Very cool. Mm. That's in Vegas. So that's the three days before uh, Hypnothoughts, August 13th, 14th, and 15th, 2019, 9 o'clock to 5 o'clock in Las Vegas. and you can find it, I'm sure, on the Hypno Thoughts site. Well, gosh, this has been really interesting. I, um, I'm glad that we could uh, set up this interview. And yeah, I mean, I love to talk about this stuff. So it's a, it's been a pleasure to find you, Sean. How do people do that? Uh, the, the IntelligentHypnotist.com is the website. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find us on Facebook. Same same thing. Um, you can email us at the intelligent hypnotist at gmail.com. Okay. Um, but we're generally around. Come and see us in New York. Fantastic. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's been awesome talking with you. Thanks, Carlos. All right. Thank you. Okay. Bye, Sarah. You've been listening to The Authenticity Show with your hosts, Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. Very special thanks to our guest today, Sean Carson. As Sean was just saying, you can find him at theintelligenthypnotist.com or you can use that handle and find him on social media. My name is Oliver Altine. I record, edit, and produce the show. I also wrote the theme music, which you're listening to right now. And the interstitial music this time was from a live jam with some good friends just a couple of weeks ago. Please subscribe to The Authenticity Show wherever you get your podcasts and find us on social media. We would love to hear from you. And our website is AuthenticityShow.com. Thanks for listening. Have an authentic day.